You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's so open our Bibles to the scripture reading. Exodus 33, verse 12, to chapter 34, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you, or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin. And take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, 
I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Our text is Mark six forty-five to 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, today we are continuing with our series on the gospel according to Mark. This would be the 28th sermon. We started this series a couple of years ago, and since not everybody has heard every sermon, and maybe we don't all remember everything we have heard, it may be worthwhile to take a minute and look back at what we've seen so far. Look back very briefly. Right from the beginning, we've seen that Mark's main theme or concern is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And so let's review some of the answers to that question so far. The gospel begins with a title informing us that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Mark 1, 14 to 20, we saw him revealed as our chief prophet and teacher. At the end of Mark 1, when he heals the leper, he's revealed as the one who restores life and communion with God and man. In Mark 2, he's revealed as the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 3, when he calls his disciples, he's revealed to be the true divine king of Israel. And in Mark 4, when he calms the wind and the waves, Scripture reveals him to be true man and true God. And when he heals the demon-possessed Gadarene in Mark 5, we see him as the Lord who shows mercy. Last week, as we considered the feeding of the 5,000, we saw him revealed as the true shepherd of Israel. And so now, as we come to Mark 6 and verses 45 to 52, we're ready to ask that question again. Mark, can you please tell us, or, or maybe tell us again, about who Jesus is? And ultimately, of course, it's not Mark, but the Holy Spirit who answers that question for us. Now, a moment ago, we sang Psalm 77, and I said that we could have read that passage, but instead we sang it. And it connects to what we find here in Mark 6. In Psalm 77, there's a a picture, an image of someone walking on the water, someone who is in control of all the natural elements. Someone 
who is a shepherd. Who is that someone? Well, we'll answer that as I preach to you God's word this morning. Jesus revealed as the one whose path led through the sea. And our passage opens somewhere on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, that lake in the northern part of Israel. Right after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat, and he sends them on their way to Bethsaida. Meanwhile, because it's late in the day and darkness is quickly approaching, he dismisses the crowds, sending them back to where they came from. And after the disciples and the crowds are gone, he himself goes up on a mountainside to pray. Now, this is a familiar pattern in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. After important events, he retreats for solitude and for prayer. But now the important question for us to ask is, what does this tell us about the Lord Jesus? Well, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is true God in the flesh, is a man of prayer. Even though he has perfect communion with God in his being, he's always had that. Even though he is God, yet he goes and he prays. These words here are for our benefit He went up on a mountainside to pray. In that we see his close relationship with his father. And we also see his perfect life. His perfect walk with God. When the Lord Jesus prayed, he didn't have to pray in someone else's name. When the Lord Jesus prayed, he didn't have to ask for the forgiveness of his sins. When the Lord Jesus prayed, he didn't have to rely on the intercession of the Holy Spirit to perfect his prayers. Loved ones, when we see the Lord Jesus in prayer in this passage, we again see our perfect Savior living a perfect life for us in our place. His perfect life combined with his suffering and death, means that we have a close relationship with our Heavenly Father. We see a perfect Savior living a perfect life for us so that we can go to God in prayer. Even with all our imperfections, with all our weaknesses, with our sin. And we can be assured that He will hear us. And that He will answer us we can be assured that He wants to hear us. What good father doesn't want to speak with his children and vice versa? We can have confidence that our weak and imperfect prayers are made perfect because of Him, because of His Spirit. Look again to Him in faith here this morning, resting and trusting in Him and His perfect obedience for you. But also when we see our Savior here and we look to Him in faith, we also live out of our union with Him. We noted last week that the Lord Jesus prayed before He and the others ate. And we noted that if the Son of God does that, those who have union with Him, those who are joined to Him 
through faith and with the Holy Spirit, should naturally go and do likewise. And here too, in the more general sense, we learn that the Lord Jesus does pray. And when He prays, He teaches us that we who have union with Him through faith in the Spirit, we do likewise. He's teaching us to rely on our Father and to express that reliance with our words, to look to Him for all our strength, to seek everything that we need for body and soul in Him and nowhere else, teaching us to pray. And as He was praying, darkness fell. Disciples were out in the middle of the lake and He was by Himself on the mountain. Perhaps it was a moonlit night. Perhaps dawn was approaching. But somehow he could look out on the lake from where he was, from that vantage point, and he could see out in the distance the disciples in the boat. They were in a tough spot. They had been directed to go to Bethsaida on the northeastern shore, but the wind was blowing in the opposite direction. And as a result, they had to use the oars and try to row their way against the wind. Despite their best efforts, despite their straining at the oars, literally it says being tortured at the oars, they weren't making any progress, any headway. In fact, in verse 53, right after our text, we learn that though they were trying to get to Bethsaida, they ended up in Gennesaret, which is south of Capernaum, on the western side of the lake, on the opposite side. And that tells us that it was quite some strong wind that they were dealing with. And they had to deal with that wind the whole night and into the early morning hours. Verse 48 says that what follows took place about the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch refers to the time between 3 o'clock a.m. and 6 o'clock a.m. Now, in some cultures, that time is associated with ghosts and spirits. Some people call it the witching hour. And that may play some role here in how the disciples first interpret what they see. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Mark says that it was the fourth watch of the night. So about 3 o'clock a.m. When Jesus set out to meet the disciples walking on the lake. Now, there's no getting around what that means. It means that he walked on the water. And as we see him doing this, we can't help but think of where we've heard of someone doing this before. In the Old Testament, in passages like Psalm 77 and Job 9, and there are other passages too, God is the one who walks on the waves of the sea. This is the first time in the Bible that we read about a human being walking on the waves. And of course, we know that he is not only a human being. He is God. And that's the key point that the Holy Spirit wants to drive home to us here. The divine nature of our Lord Jesus is also drawn out when it says, He was about to pass by them. Now, we read from Exodus 34, and there 
Yahweh, the Lord, right? When we have Lord in all capital letters, that's Yahweh, God's personal covenant name. In Exodus 34, Yahweh allows Moses to catch a glimpse of his glory. In verse 6, we read that Yahweh passed in front of Moses. And that's exactly the same kind of language that's used in Mark 6.48. And I don't think that's coincidental. The Lord Jesus comes to them walking on the water, revealing himself to be the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. The one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. The one whom Thomas would later acclaim as my Lord and my God. And Thomas is there in the boat with the other disciples as they see him at that moment. But instead of recognizing him for who he is, they think that he's a ghost or an apparition. They think they're seeing things maybe. They can't think that it is Jesus himself in the flesh before them, walking on the waves. That thought, that's impossible. So that can't and it doesn't enter into their minds. Whoever or whatever it is that's out there on the waves, it can't really be Jesus. So, what are you left with? Well, it must be a ghost or a spirit. And that thought terrifies them, scares the living daylights out of them. After all, who knows what a ghost might do to you in the middle of a lake, three o'clock in the morning. And so here are these 12 men in a boat, three o'clock in the morning, the wind howling, the waves crashing, and they think they've seen a ghost, and they're afraid, and they start screaming. Can you picture it? Yeah. It's a scene of terror. And no sooner does that terror express itself with their screams than Jesus speaks with them. The terror is short-lived because Jesus is there to quash it. He has words of encouragement for them. And also for us. He speaks with them and He says, Take courage. And you know, in the New Testament, almost every occurrence of these words comes from the mouth of Jesus. He's almost always the one to say in the New Testament, Take courage. He's telling them to be brave. That they can have confidence, even in this desperate situation. These are words of encouragement. Words of reassurance. Everything's going to be alright. How can He give them those words of comfort? What's on the basis of His presence? And who He is. His identity is revealed again when He says, It is I. Now, if you have a good study Bible, it'll tell you in the notes that literally it says there, I, I am. And if we look back again to the Old Testament, we find out that that was how God revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In John 8, the Lord Jesus was even bolder. 
In verse 58 of John 8, he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And the Jews, when they heard that, they immediately recognized what he was saying. They immediately recognized that he was claiming to be God. And we know that because they picked up stones to try to put him to death right then and there. And in John 10, they came right out and said that they were not stoning him because of the miracles that he did, but for his blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And so when he says here in Mark 6, it is I, I, I am, let's be clear what he's saying there. He's saying that God has come out to meet them. That God has come out to be with them in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm. And then we find the most frequent command in the entire Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Is found sprinkled liberally throughout the Old and New Testament. It is, loved ones, it is the most frequent command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. It's in Genesis. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Genesis 15.1. It's in 2 Kings 1.15. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. It's in Isaiah 41, verse 4. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. I myself will help you. Now, picture in your mind pages more of such references where God says, don't be afraid. Pages more. And you know what all those references have in common? Every one of them is spoken by God. God is the one who comes to His people. And He reassures them and He tells them, don't be afraid. God is alert to the fears of His people. God is alert to all our fears and all our anxieties, whatever they might be. And so what does it say about Jesus when he comes to his disciples out on the lake and says, don't be afraid? First of all, it reveals again that he is God. In him and in his words, we have more revelation of who God is and how he relates to his people. Who is God? He is the sovereign Lord and King, almighty God, the Lord of hosts, the great I am. He's in control of everything that happens. Every wave out on that lake that night was answering to His sovereign decree. Every blast of wind was ordained by Him. Every hair that blew off the head of the disciples blew off because of His will. And every situation in our lives too They're not freak occurrences. They happen because of God's sovereign will. God is always in control. He never sleeps. He never takes a break. 
But there's a second important truth that goes hand in hand with that, that you cannot separate from that. If you separate it, it's pitiable if you separate them. Because God is not only our sovereign Lord and King, He's also the one who cares for us deeply. Jesus loved those 12 men in the boat. He came to them because He cared. And His love is a reflection of the fatherly love that God has for His children. He not only has a hand of power, He also has a heart of love. And so, loved ones, we can be assured that everything works together for our good. We can be confident of God's generosity towards us and of His desire to bless us. A desire that cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything in heaven above or on earth. And so when Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Those words aren't just some kind of wishful thinking. They're words that have substance. They have substance because of who He is. And note that I said who He is, not who He was. Because as we heard last week from Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. These words spoken by Jesus still have substance because He is the same. Brothers and sisters, you can count on that. After encouraging his disciples, he got up into the boat with them. He not only comforts them with his words, but also with the nearness of his presence. They can see for themselves that it is really him, and they have really no reason to fear. The person they saw walking on the water is not going to do them harm, but only good. After all, this is the true shepherd of Israel. The one who gave them bread and fish in such abundance a few short hours ago. He's the true shepherd who also fed them with his word. They had the nearness of his physical presence. But what about us? Do we have his nearness in the same way? Oh, we know that He comforts us with His Word, but what about comforting us with His presence? Well, He is not physically present on earth any longer. His physical human body, the body that was in that boat on that evening, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But when He ascended into heaven, He gave His promise to the church, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Familiar words from Matthew 28, verse 20. And how He does that is through His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us and He comforts us and strengthens us. And in fact, in John's Gospel, the Spirit is called the Counselor. In other Bible translations, you'll find the word Comforter. Both are equally valid translations. 
The Holy Spirit is the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete, the one whom Jesus has sent to give us the comfort of his presence. He is always with us through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, he brings faith to our hearts so that when we hear the promises of the gospel, we joyfully accept these in faith. And in this way, we have union with Christ. Union with Christ. We have a spiritual nearness that Scripture portrays with the image of a branch being grafted onto the vine. Let me ask you, how much closer can you get than that? And so, yes, beloved, we do have the nearness of Jesus to comfort us too. As we turn back to the disciples here in our text, they have him physically near again. And what was fear turns to this wide-eyed amazement. Because not only did he walk on the water, but as soon as he got into the boat, the wind disappeared. They were completely amazed. Literally, they were astonished very exceedingly and amazed. They were beside themselves with what they had just seen happen. Who ever heard of a man walking on the waves? And that ties into the last verse, verse 52. Here Mark says that they were amazed because they hadn't understood about the loaves. He looks back to the feeding of the 5,000 and he says that there's a connection between what happens there and the response of the disciples here. What is that connection? They were amazed because there was something lacking in their understanding of who Jesus is. They didn't understand what happened with the loaves. They weren't getting the revelation of his identity as God come in the flesh. You remember the great surprise that we saw last Sunday in that passage before this one? Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Who among men would do that? Who else? would do that, other than the true shepherd of Israel, God himself. Who else would have that kind of a heart for these lost sheep? When he fed the 5,000, both with his word and with the physical food, the disciples missed the boat. They failed to see that he was and that he is more than a mere man. When he walked on the water and when the wind abated, they were amazed because they still hadn't come to expect such things from their Lord and Master, from their Rabbi. They still thought of Jesus in terms that were restricted to his humanity. This is just a man, nothing more. And in this way, they were also failing to see him as the Messiah promised from long ago. After all, the prophets were clear enough that the Messiah would be a divine figure. Think only of Isaiah chapter 9. They didn't see it because their hearts were hard. If they had understood what was going on with the feeding of the 5,000, 
then when they were out on the lake, it would have been completely reasonable to expect that this was Jesus coming to them. Then they could call out to Him with faith and have the expectation that He could help them. The disciples were missing the boat on who Jesus is. They were lacking in faith. And no, they're not hostile to Him, like the Jewish leaders whose hearts, we're told in Scripture, were also hardened. But they are missing something about Him. What actually is most important about Him? That He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One of God. Now, it's true that as the Gospel of Mark goes on, there are moments where the disciples begin to get it. They have light bulb moments. For instance, in in Mark 8, Jesus asks, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers rightly, You are the Christ. But Peter and the other disciples, they still abandon him in the end, and they leave him to suffer and to die virtually alone. It's only after the resurrection of Jesus that the the disciples fully grasp who he is. That he is the Christ who had been sent to crush the head of the serpent. Sent to redeem God's people. Now, brothers and sisters, we too, we live after the resurrection. And we have been blessed with the full revelation of Jesus' identity. And then Mark's words here pose the question to us in an even more pointed way, have we understood about the loaves? And let's say we answer yes to that question. What does that do to how we read this text? How we see our Lord Jesus in this text? Do we see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man, sent to live perfectly for us, sent to take our curse for us on the cross? Do we take hold of Him by faith, resting and trusting in Him as He's revealed to us? Do you? When He says to us in our fears and anxieties, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Can we say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, can you? Loved ones, the Savior holds out to us the revelation of Himself again this morning. And He does that to encourage us and to strengthen us. Let not your hearts be hardened by unbelief. Instead, let's look to our Savior in faith, trusting in Him, trusting in His divine power and in His love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which always challenges, guides, encourages, and strengthens us. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, revealed in your word. Father, we're grateful that he reveals your power and your love for us. We worship you for your goodness and your grace, for your mercy and your sovereign almighty hand, having you with us and on our side. We have no reason to fear. Thank you for the confidence that gives us. Please continue to strengthen our faith. 
Help us with Your Word and Spirit to continue resting and trusting in our Lord Jesus each day. Help us also to depend on You and to express that dependence through our daily prayers. Help us also to show ourselves thankful for this wonderful good news of the Gospel. We pray that You would give us more grace through Your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our God and Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.